there, obviously. Let me try to package this in a way of how we might think of it. Martin Lloyd-Jones is considered one of the great preachers of the 20th century. A favorite quote of mine of Lloyd-Jones captures what I think we must keep in mind with that passage. Lloyd-Jones said, there are two ways, two ways we can go wrong in the relationship of experience to the, teach to the teaching of the scriptures. Two ways we can go wrong on this issue of experience and the teaching of scripture. The first danger, he said, is of claiming things which go beyond the scripture or even contrary to it. The second danger, the second danger is being satisfied with something very much less than is offered in Scripture. And then Lloyd-Jones adds, the second danger is the greater danger of the two at the present time. Two dangers, he says, two dangers that every church faces as it relates to experience and the teaching of Scripture. On the one hand, going beyond Scripture in the pursuit of some experience. On the other hand, being satisfied with less than is offered to us in Holy Scripture. Two, two dangers we will always face as a church. Two dangers you and I face as individuals. Which one, just consider for a moment for application maybe, which one perhaps are you more vulnerable to? Which danger might you lean toward, if you will? Possibly, possibly going beyond Scripture in your pursuit of experience. You know, you're a spiritual adrenaline junkie, spiritual bungee jumper, always pursuing the next spiritual experience. For you, experience is everything. Or... Or are you prone to the other danger of being satisfied with very much less, Lloyd-Jones said, very much less than is offered to you in Holy Scripture? You, you're, you're wary of anything put under the banner of experience. Red flags go up when you hear the word experience. See, as a church, friends, we must, we must navigate these two dangers, and as an individual Christian, if you are a Christian here, you must navigate those two dangers personally, and so I ask you, how? How will you do so? How will you avoid the danger on the one hand of going beyond Scripture, and the danger on the other hand of being satisfied with less than is offered to you in Scripture? Well, I believe in this passage we find help for navigating those two dangers. This passage addresses a problem that we don't have, which makes preaching it interesting. This passage addresses the problem of individuals blurting out unlearned languages in an uninterpreted fashion. And we don't have that here, thankfully. That, that is not the problem we have. However, we can learn from the solution God offers to that problem 
and navigate those two dangers. So think of this with me, if you're tracking, think of this as three guiding principles, three guiding principles for when the Spirit comes to church, which He does every Sunday. Three guiding principles. Here's principle number one. Friends, excel in edification. Excel in edification. The apostle is addressing, like I said, the the abuse and misuse of this gift of what he calls tongues or unlearned languages. And so he says in verse 6, Now, brothers, verse 6, If I come to you speaking in tongues an unlearned language of prayer or praise, how will I benefit you? How will I benefit you unless, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge, that's the content, revelation or knowledge, by means of prophecy or teaching? In other words... Spiritual benefit requires intelligible content. And that's the point of the whole chapter, okay? (laughs) Spiritual benefit requires intelligible content. Edification requires intelligibility. And he uses three analogies to drive that one point home. Musical instruments, military bugle calls, and human communication. He says you need distinct, intelligible notes to discern what's being played in a musical piece. You need distinct bugle sounds of some kind to rouse an army to battle, and you need intelligible communication, intelligible language rather, to communicate meaning in language. Three illustrations to communicate one thing, because the Corinthians were so enamored with this gift of unlearned languages of prayer or praise. They counted it as the the superior gift. It is what C.S. Lewis called the inner ring, the experience of the inner ring, the universal human desire to be with the in crowd, to be with it. And we all experience that, don't we? The inner ring in Corinth was this one spiritual gift. Real spirituality in Corinth was password protected. To be a true spirit person, you had to have this one gift and you had to blurt it out during the service. And it must have been so chaotic. We don't have that inner ring here, like I said, thankfully. We don't have that inner ring here on that issue. But we can learn from the solution. So notice how God turns that inner ring inside out in verse 12. Skip down to verse 12. So with yourselves, he concludes, since you are eager, zealous for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up, edifying the church. Here's the bottom line. Since you are so zealous for spiritual things, he says, be zealous for ways to edify other people when you gather like this. That helps us avoid, in part, that first danger of going beyond Scripture. God says, in essence, first, check your motive. Check your motive. Use that spiritual stethoscope of chapter 13 
Look for love. And out of love, seek to build others up. Out of love, seek to edify other people. In other words, think of these gifts as ministry tools to be used for the good of those around you right now. Think about tools you might have at home, a a screwdriver or a hammer or pliers, a pair of pliers. They are just tools, different tools for different jobs, probably to fix things. Spiritual gifts are just tools for the job of ministry. They are ministry tools meant to build others up, to impart some benefit to their souls. This is the corrective the Corinthians needed, and it's a great lesson for us. And we've been seeing this lesson for about, oh, two chapters or so. But let us be reminded once again. See, this world's way, this world's way is to, it's to pit us against each other, isn't it? I gain through your loss. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's survival of the fittest. But in the church, God says, turn that ring inside out and look to the interests of others. Asking, how can I minister to you? How can I serve you? How can I somehow edify you and build you up in this most holy faith? And friends, I think you can make application of this to any spiritual gift. I've heard Mark Dever talk about a friend of his who was a very gifted evangelist. He had a pronounced gift for evangelism, but he never joined a local church. And so Dr. Dever asked him, friend, why don't you join a local church? And this gifted friend said, you know, if I did that, joining with other people, that would just slow me down. It would slow me down in my gifts. And Dr. Dever wisely replied, have you ever thought that maybe God wants to use you to speed others up? It's a guiding principle. Check your motive. Excel, God says, in edification. Maybe ask it this way. Ask yourself, what's my mission when I come here on Sundays? What's my mission in terms of relating to other people? What's your mission, your purpose? Or what's my mission when I go to my home group? How would you answer? Don't blurt it out, but think about it. So often, don't we ask, first and foremost, what am I going to get out of this meeting? And can't we apply this and ask first, what can I give to other people in this meeting? How can I benefit them? How can I build them up in the Lord? Friends, we will not go beyond Scripture as we embrace this principle, excel in edification. And to the Corinthians, the apostle was saying, be understood to do that. Be intelligible that you might build others up. Now what he does is he applies that to two different groups. He takes that principle and applies it in two different directions for the rest of our passage. First, to believers, and then to unbelievers. Let's see them in turn. Next, let's draw a principle that we could call prioritize public instruction. Prioritize public instruction 
Oh, and by the way, don't forget personal experience, parenthetically, as well. God applies this principle now to believers in the gathered church. Verse 13, therefore, in light of what I just said, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue, in another language, should pray that he may interpret. So the apostle's not against, categorically, this gift of unlearned languages ever being used in a worship service, but it had to be interpreted, had to be made intelligible. In our context, he'd say to us, speak in English, Grace Church. Be intelligible. Pray that God would enable you to do that. And then he gives a fascinating insight into his own personal experience. Verse 14. For, for if I pray in a tongue, an unlearned language, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. The apostle saying, when he uses this gift, the Holy Spirit is, as it were, praying with or through his own spirit, but he says, my mind is unfruitful, I don't know what I'm saying. It's an unlearned language. So in verse 15, he says, or asks, what am I to do? I have this dilemma, Corinthians. What am I to do? Now, you'd think he would say, especially in light of the abuses in that church, I will pray with my mind only. I am never going to leave my mind out of the equation. But he doesn't say that. He says, I will do both. I will pray with my spirit, with this gift, but I will pray with my mind also. In fact, he says, I will sing praise with this gift of unlearned languages, but I will sing with my mind also. It's very fascinating. It's not, it's not either or for the apostle. It's, it's both and. In fact, he surprises us in verse 18, look at verse 18, where he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Would you say that to the tongue-happy Corinthians? I would not say that. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. It seems he is outflanking them. And he's giving us some insight into Paul the Christian. We don't get many of these. An insight in his own sort of spirituality. He prays with this gift of languages more than they do, which must mean in private, as we'll see in a moment. It must be this private prayer language or praise language for the apostle. So, so here's an example of someone avoiding that second danger of being satisfied with much less than may be offered. In scripture. I'm not saying, I'm not saying you must have this one particular gift. That's creating the Corinthian inner ring. I'm saying don't rule anything out either. Desire all the personal empowering and personal gifting God may give you. But publicly, for the gathered church, the apostle had an unmistakable priority. Look at verse 19. 
Nevertheless, in church, in the gathered congregation, in La Mesa Community Center, I would rather speak five words with my mind, intelligible words, understandable words, in order to instruct others, than 10,000 words in a tongue. In church, I'd rather have five words that people understand. Just give me five. I don't care about 10,000 words that people don't understand and won't do them any good. I want just five words that will be intelligible to them, that they might be built up in their souls through the means of instruction. A wonderful statement I would submit to you about the priority of preaching and teaching and the objective Word of God. A profound statement about the necessity of teaching and preaching in the gathered congregation, and I think by implication, a profound statement about the way in which we teach each other and remind each other and build our lives around the objective Word of God. Five words that are understood to instruct other people. But catch, catch what the apostle is holding together in this paragraph. He's grateful for this unusual gift that he must be using in private even more than the tongue-happy Corinthians, which is quite an achievement, I think. He's grateful for this unusual gift for prayer or praise, but in the gathered church, he says five words that people understand through instruction. There's something there that helps us navigate those two dangers, isn't there? We navigate those two dangers by keeping his example in mind. Sometimes, I believe it was D.A. Carson who said, sometimes we can swing the pendulum in the church way out to be only about experience, only about experience. We must feel everything, and the Sunday service becomes all about a personal worship experience. Right? I think it's very common in evangelicalism today, a, just a personal worship experience, and then we just ask, did the music move me sufficiently? Did the Spirit touch me overtly? Are certain gifts evident in every meeting? I am a spiritual adrenaline junkie. <laughs> I am a spiritual bungee jumper. It's the primacy of experience over the primacy of God's Word. And in that case, we need to hear the Apostle saying five words. Five words of objective truth to instruct. But we can swing the pendulum out over here as well to be about the intellect only as well. And we, we intellectualize the gospel entirely. It becomes only about the mind. And growth in the Christian life is equated to how much information can I take in instead of how much can I apply. And we develop an, an allergy to biblically defined experience. We become suspicious that anything, move, anything that moves the heart as it informs the mind. And for the apostle, it's not either or. It's both and. 
His priority is to preach. His priority is, is to instruct. But, but learn from his personal example as well. I think, I think there's a bit of a vision here for us as a church in this paragraph. There's a nicely succinct vision for Grace Church in this paragraph. It's a vision of, of word and spirit together. Word and spirit held together. A vision of, of light and, and heat as older Christian generations have put it. And let's have both, right? Let us prioritize public instruction. That's the point for the gathered church. Five words. Let us prioritize the objective word of God. Let us, in fact, prioritize as well preaching of God's word in our services. And let us have, as Colossians 3 says, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly to teach and admonish one another. It can happen one another too. It should happen in a one another way. While not, friends, not making the Christian life merely an intellectual exercise but people be people who are also actively relying on the Spirit, for instance, through prayer. People who are praying regularly to be filled with the Spirit, as Ephesians 5.18 commands. People who are grateful for genuine Spirit-given experience. I was talking with a member here recently, and this member informed me of how he was memorizing and meditating on Scripture in new ways. And he was very excited about the Word of God. He referred to it as you know, sharpening the sword for spiritual battles happening in his life, in his soul. He was meditating on, memorizing God's Word. And he said, I am praying, I think, daily to be filled with the Spirit per Ephesians 5.18. I said, that is fantastic. It's word and spirit together. It's light and heat together. But in the church, we prioritize public instruction. That's the edification principle applied to believers. What about unbelievers? What about unbelievers? Let's look at a third principle briefly. Welcome, and I don't like how I phrase this. <laughs> But I'm stuck with it, right? It's my fault. I couldn't think of something else. Welcome empowered evangelism. Tell me a better title later on. God gets pretty blunt in verse 20. He says, don't be children in your thinking. Don't be immature. Be like infants as it relates to evil. But in your thinking, Corinthians, be mature. And mature thinking that he's after is still be intelligible in your gathered worship. Be understood now for the sake of unbelievers. And to help make that point, he draws from a passage in Isaiah chapter 28. Now, D.A. Carson has said these are extraordinarily difficult verses, which is discouraging. But let me do my best. Here's the difficulty on the surface of it. Verse 22 says... Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy, New Testament prophecy, is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Tongue is, tongues are said to be a sign for unbelievers, 
prophecy, this kind of sign for believers. But in the following verses, it would seem unbelievers respond negatively to this gift of unlearned languages and positively to prophecy, which seems to contradict verse 22. You see, it seems maybe some in Corinth were saying, well, the use of unlearned languages, it really shows those outside the community of faith God's powerful presence in our church. And the apostle saying, well, that's partly true. It is a sign to them, but it's a negative sign of judgment. And that's why he pulls on Isaiah 28. Because there God was warning his people of his coming judgment through the Assyrians who spoke a different language. So this strange language the Assyrians spoke was a sign of judgment for God's people. That's what you see Paul applying, I think, in verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in these unlearned languages, uninterpreted fashion, and some poor outsider or unbeliever enters, will they not say, you are out of your minds? Literally, you are possessed. And they will flee from your meetings as fast as they can and never hear and respond to the good news of Jesus. Thus, that becomes an expression of judgment on them. They fled away from the gospel. But a sign can be positive or negative depending on your response. And I think that's the key here. A sign can be positive or negative depending on your response. And so unlearned languages are this sign that is negative about judgment. But prophecy becomes this positive sign like we read in verse 24. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. And the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Among you, sorry. God is really among you. So that becomes a positive sign, as it were, if they hear in unlearned languages, uh, hear in learned languages, understandable languages, the secrets of their heart, and then they truly do realize God is in their midst. The key being a sign can function negatively or positively. And that was my own experience years ago. And I share my, not, my experience not because it's authoritative in any way, but I hope illustrative. It was 1990. I was living in Santa Barbara, and a guy was sharing Jesus with me, and he invited me to church. I had not darkened the door of a church service in a long time, since I was a small child. But this friend of mine said his girlfriend had made banners that were being displayed. Churches were into banners back then, if you are a little bit younger. I know it's hard to understand. Needless to say, in attending to see the banners, I was very uncomfortable. People were showing their love to Jesus through song and 
very, very expressive ways, and I remained seated on the aisle, ready for a quick exit. Very uncomfortable. But while I sat there, there was just this sense of tightness around my head, this almost squeezing sensation, which may have been, <laughs> may have been my rising blood pressure as I was so very uncomfortable. And so I felt this squeezing around my head. Now, just so you understand, if this church still existed, which it doesn't, I wouldn't recommend you join it. It had some, some weaknesses that were significant, but God is kind to use imperfect churches like our own. And there were people there with some profound spiritual gifts. So I'm sitting there with my head feeling squeezed, probably by my elevated blood pressure. And someone shares from a microphone, there's a woman here who feels like she's being stalked by a spirit of death. And a man here who feels like his head is in a vice. <laughs> this is a true story. At some point, a woman comes forward saying that she had been contemplating suicide. Now, I don't know why that was announced. I don't think it should have been announced. But it was announced, and people were praying for her. No one came forward with their head in a vice sensation. <laughs> and if you ask me, I think it's because his bottom was glued to the chair, and he wasn't going anywhere. Now, you don't have to agree with me that that was me. But I was convinced. And I didn't fall on my face in that moment and say, God is here. I was pretty frightened and eager to leave. But I did leave saying, I think God is real. And I was converted probably two or three weeks after that. Now, I share that simply to say, these gifts, if used properly, if used properly, can be used by God powerfully to convert, to expose the secrets of the heart so that people fall on their face and say, God is in your midst. And so now, think back to those two dangers Lloyd-Jones warned us about. Two dangers. On the one hand, going beyond Scripture. On the other hand, being satisfied with much less than is offered in Scripture. And as Lloyd-Jones said, that second danger might be the greater one for us. What about you, friends? You can use these principles we are drawing to navigate both. First, excel in edification. Excel. Be, be zealous for these spiritual gifts as God commands us. 1 Corinthians 14.1 Be eager for them. Eagerly desire them, but create no 
inner rings. Turn that ring inside out and with a heart of love, look for those you can edify. Make that your mission at every Sunday service or home group. How can I edify and build up the people of God? Second, as you prioritize public instruction, as you prioritize the inspired Word of God, as we never diminish the importance of the Word of God, as we always prioritize the preaching of the Word of God, and we always make sure the Word of God is dwelling in us richly as we teach and admonish one another, one another, while at the same time not being satisfied with much less than may be offered to us. In Scripture, don't make it an either-or. See the apostles saying, it's both and. I'll take whatever God gives if I can be useful to edify others. But thirdly, that's welcome. Even pray for this sort of empowered evangelism, right? We need the Spirit for all aspects of evangelism. Maybe, maybe God will do what we read there, right here, and someone's heart may be exposed and they would come to Christ because of what you share. Three principles to benefit as the Spirit comes to church every single Sunday. But let us end once again with a matter of first importance. Don't forget where the Apostle Paul goes next. The matter of first importance is Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was raised and is ascended and is returning. And so let's close by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. The music team can come.